Mindfulness Mode 277. When they sleep, that is pure relaxation. Hey, Mindful Tribe, thanks for joining again today. Last time, we talked about how corporations can increase their bottom line by introducing mindfulness to their employees. I talked to Susan Blaze, who was the CEO of a large corporation. That was mindfulnessmode.com slash 276. A very interesting episode, I must say. 2017 is starting to close in on us. Have you thought about goals for 2018? JJ Flizanes from episode 227, back then she talked about body shame. Well, JJ is offering a live event in LA in January. She calls this a mind, body, soul event. Maybe you're struggling with, with truly committing to yourself to make changes in your life. JJ knows how to help you release the blocks that are holding you back. In her event, she gives you the time, space, and tools to release those stubborn blocks. The event is called Releasing What Weighs You Down. There are a limited number of seats, and there's also a virtual ticket if you can't make it to LA. Take JJ's survey to find out if this event is right for you. Just go to the link at mindfulnessmode.com slash JJ2018quiz. I think you'll be very happy if you either take her up on the virtual ticket or head right over to LA and get involved in this awesome event. You can check out the event itself at mindfulnessmode.com slash JJ2018. Today... We talk about stage fright and how mindfulness is a solid way you can get rid of it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy today's episode about stage fright. Hey, Mindful Tribe. I don't know if you're a musician or if you're a speaker, but, you know, we've all had that time when we had to step on stage and we had to maybe say a little speech or a few words. Well, today I have Dr. Julie Jaffe Nagel here. Hey, Dr. Nagel, are you in mindfulness mode today? You know, here in the States, it's the day after Thanksgiving, and I am feeling very more relaxed than I am when I'm rushing around trying to get everything done. And yes, I have had time to reflect and to do some uh, really deep breathing and uh, calming down and being with family and friends, which is a different mode than being working all the time for deadlines. So I think I am more comfortable. You certainly sound like it. You certainly sound relaxed and mindful, Dr. Nagel. I just want to share with Mindful Tribe a little bit about you, Dr. Nagel. Dr. Julie Jaffe Nagel is a psychotherapist and psychoanalyst. As a concert pianist with two degrees from the Juilliard School of Music in New York City, Dr. Nagel repeatedly experienced stage fright and performance stress. She eventually decided to gain a more thorough understanding of what interfered with doing what she loved and was trained to do. That's when she returned to school at the University of Michigan and graduated with degrees in social work, and even a PhD in psychology. Now, 
She's treated hundreds of individuals and helped them discover and peel back their barriers to feeling competent so that they can pursue and fulfill their professional and personal dreams. Well, let's start here, Dr. Nagel. What does mindfulness mean to you? Well, to me, mindfulness brings up a thought of inner peace, a sense of calmness, a sense of confidence, a sense of, I'm going to be able to get through this, even with all the challenges out there. And that I don't have to be so, um, you know, in a high-powered, get-it-done-quickly mode that everything seems impossible. Rather, that my mind can help to, to, to relax these intrusive thoughts about what I can't do and help me feel I can. I can reach these goals. I can accomplish this. Well, you loved music when you were younger, and that's obviously why you ended up at Juilliard. Tell us about your love of music. How old were you when you first realized that was something you enjoyed immensely? This is lifelong, Bruce. I started playing a little toy 24-key piano when I was four years old. Oh, cool. And for some, some way, I don't know how, I was picking out tunes on it, and I loved it. And then when I was six years old, I started piano lessons, and uh, my mother got me a full-size piano at that point. Right. I can't remember a time when I didn't love music uh, and wasn't involved in playing the piano. And as I got older, uh, my commitment even grew stronger, and my desire to become a concert pianist grew and grew and grew until I had this ambition to go to Juilliard and and go for it. Um, I must say that Leonard Bernstein and the New York yes. Philharmonic Young People's Concerts was a huge influence on me growing up. Uh, and Leonard Bernstein is about to be honored for his 100th birthday next August. Fortunately, I'm not quite that old. <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. Nagel, did you perform for family and friends when you were a child? I did. Uh, the more um, experienced I got and the more advanced I got on the piano, the more my family and friends would ask me to play something for them. And then school assemblies would ask me to play there. Uh, little local organizations would ask me to play there. And actually... It was during those early years that I had a, a, my first memory slip. Something, oh, was it? something was happening aside from really wanting to play. There was a part of me that felt very anxious about playing, even as a little girl. So it, one thing I, I um, think is very important is to, to realize that not only a life in music, but stage fright can start very, very young, not just when you go on stage as an older experienced person. So as a young child performing for your friends and family, do you remember the anxiety and the stage fright back then? I remember my first memory slip was six years old when I first started playing the piano, actually. I remember that. Oh, tell us about that. It was, it was a terrifying experience. And of course, a six-year-old can't tell you. They just feel it. Yes. But 
I was recording a little composition that I composed. Mm -hmm. And it was at my piano teacher's studio. And I knew for some, somehow this little girl knew that this would be forever recorded. Once you recorded, you, in my mind, you don't erase it. It's there forever. And I forgot my own music. I just couldn't remember what I had composed. And I was whispering, stop the record, stop the record. Either she didn't hear me or she didn't listen to me, but she didn't stop it. And so that humiliating experience is recorded somewhere. Uh, but it was, it's indelible in my mind. And you couldn't shake it. And then was it such that every time you played for people after that, you remembered that moment when you forgot previously? Not consciously, but in some kind of feeling, I think inside of me, there was, you know, am I going to get through? How's it going to be? What are people going to think? Uh, I was unable, and, and I don't think anyone really realized what feelings I had, because I couldn't put them into words. And I didn't have as a child the, the capacity to understand, just I had the feeling, which I think is where mindfulness comes in so helpfully, is to be able to go into oneself and calm oneself, and uh, to be able to transcend those kind of anxious moments. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think people really realized, you know, when you're talented and you perform well 99% of the time and the other 1% nobody else notices but you, no one really understood. No one really got it. So, Did you play exams for the years leading up to the time you went to Juilliard where you maybe felt extreme anxiety at that time? There were times, um, but I did play a lot uh, before. You have to audition for Juilliard. Sure. It, when you go to a conservatory, well, Juilliard is a, I mean, you get a full degree there, but it is a, the focus is, of course, on music performance. You yes. have to audition, and even if you have, which I did, I had straight A's in high school. I was, I was a good student. Mm -hmm. I performed well in school, but I loved it. I don't mean to say I didn't love what I did, but you have to perform to get into these schools. So yeah, I had performed a lot and sometimes, you know, I didn't feel it. And other times I was, I felt it uh, more than others. Now that doesn't mean it has to, what we call mess you up, but it certainly doesn't make you comfortable. Right. You know, you're always waiting for that pothole somewhere. <laughs> Sometimes they come and sometimes they don't. But the feeling is always kind of an on edge before you go on stage. How will it go? Sure. And after graduating from Juilliard, did you perform as a concert pianist? I did for a while. Um, uh, you know, a lot of things go on between the time you enter Juilliard and leave it. And you start kind of evaluating what am I going to do the rest of my life? And you start to realize that a career in music performance only is problematic. It was then, it is now. And um, by the time I got my master's degree, I'd gotten married to my husband, who is also a Juilliard graduate with three degrees and a brilliant concert performer. We did forehand performances and two piano performances. I did not want to do solo by the time we graduated. 
Right. I felt more comfortable with someone else on the stage playing with me. And the repertoire is just fantastic. So you've written a book called Managing Stage Fright, and it's a guide for musicians and music teachers. Tell us a strategy that can help handle the stage fright people have. Well, that's a big question. There are strategies for managing, let me emphasize, not eliminating, because it's important to have a moderate amount, which varies for each person, to be able to be spontaneous and exciting um, when you go on stage. But for the overabundance, when you have too much of a good thing, certainly a mindfulness procedure would be very helpful to take some time, sit down in a comfortable place, take some slow, deep breaths and exhale, and focus on some word or phrase, or image, and do that for a, a period of time until you can feel your whole body relaxing. Um, one thing that helps me, and I mentioned earlier, I think before we were recording, we have two kittens here, and when they sleep, that is pure relaxation. I mean, they could not perform a concert <laughs> <laughs> uh, when they're sleeping, but they are so peaceful that sometimes I sit in my rocking chair, which I love to do. It's a memory of my grandfather, which, who I love dearly. And I yeah. watch these kittens sleeping and curled up together. I come away from that in a very different frame of mind. Even as I talk to you now, I can feel it happening. Um, that's one way. Another way is to be very, very aware of things you say to yourself that indicate you're not good enough and you can't do it and a lot of self-doubting you know will the audience like me will i get through the program uh here comes the hard spot i don't know if i can do it and to be able to turn that kind of thinking around to i've done it before i'm prepared to the more reassuring kind of statements now this is not something you can just do when you go on stage. This is something you have to practice as much as you practice your speech or your recital or your um, presentation. I mean, performance anxiety is not just for musicians. We share it with a lot of people. So that kind of thing, and, and also the, the relaxation or meditation or mindfulness also has to be something that you are ready to switch over your gears to. Those uh, are some yes. things that teachers can help students with or that we can try to help ourselves. Part B to my answer, and I'll be very short, but it, because it's a long process, is if a person wants to delve into their psychological background in a, in a deep way, one can go into a, a therapy that helps you probe, say, childhood antecedents of where this anxiety comes from in the first place. What, where did it start? For example, in my life, what was going on when I was six years old? And I won't get into that now, but a lot was going on in my life then. And how did that get transformed into 
an anxiety where I worried about not being good enough. Because I think at the root of anxieties is a fear of not being good enough, of being exposed in public. Others will see you, maybe make fun of you, not like you. And so it's, there's shorter and longer answers, but um, that's what I talk about in the book. So uh, you get the whole spectrum of, of ways I tried to cover many ways to think about dealing with this thing called performance anxiety or stage fright. Right. And I know you've, you've helped hundreds of people with stage fright and performance anxiety. Can you tell us a story of someone that you helped that sticks in your mind that just made a huge difference in their life? Yeah, I have treated a lot of people, uh, and I hope I have helped a lot of people. Um, sometimes it even shows up after you've finished working with somebody when things have a chance to sink in more than the most immediate, you know, week-to-week or day-to-day experience in therapy. Um, I think that someone that I helped, goodness, so many, so many images are flashing through my mind, it's hard to kind of zero in on one, and I also am conscious of confidentiality, which I of think course. is raising my anxiety to the answering this question. Um, let me talk about myself because I'm not going to violate confidentiality there. Sure, sure, of course. Um, in that my, my six-year-old anxiety occurred at a time when my parents were divorcing. Ah. And um, I was very anxious about being, you know, left and forgotten and what would happen to me. And the mind can work tricks on you. Uh, the mind can displace or transform, or in music we call it, uh, modulate to other mm-hmm. things to represent something else. So how I understand now my stage fright, among many other things, but was this divorce, would I be forgotten? And it turned around into me forgetting something that was important to me, playing my own music, which in a six-year-old's mind, and in anybody's mind, is more beautiful when your parents are together. Sure. So, so I, much later in my life, of course, went back to school and did all the things you mentioned as an attempt to kind of repair and understand. And what really helped me was having my own analysis and understanding how stage fright starts it can start for many people, especially musicians, because you do start lessons very young. Yes. You can't start your lessons at 18, 19, 20 when you're in college. And so this is something that is a lifelong developmental thing. And thank goodness I was able to work through some of these losses and anxieties and being forgotten and how I was then even to the point of thinking, did I cause this to happen? You know, was I a bad girl? Is that why they didn't stay mm. together? Children think that way. It's called yes, magic. Yes, of course they do. You know, and to deal with my magic thinking, invaluable to me to be able to do that. Right. So, mm. Well, you mentioned meditation. Mm-hmm. Do you meditate? What does it look like in your life? Well, I think that to me, meditation and mindfulness, and I'm, you're the expert, Bruce, you know, I bow to you on this. But to me, it is um, 
finding a quiet place inside of myself and and doing some deep breathing. Um, I remember in 1975, I don't know how, by chance, I discovered a book by Dr. Herbert Benson. Do you know it? Mm-hmm. Uh, the the uh, Relaxation Response. I've heard of the book, but I have not read it. He's a physician at Harvard. Um, that book was very powerful to me uh, when I read it. And that was before I went back to school or got into any of the work that I do now. I was still teaching music and performing some. Uh, and it was about the actually scientific validation of deep breathing and focusing on, a, he called it a mantra, or I call it a phrase, or an image. Um, it, it is calming. So that's what it looks like for me, and that's what I, I find myself doing. Even at a traffic light, if I'm agitated, <laughs> I can try to pull some of that in and say, wait a minute, you'll, you'll move when you move, and let's, let's simmer down. So it's, it's a combination of meditation and uh, a more cognitive coping and, and the realization you're going to get through this. So tell us what made you decide to write the book, Dr. Nagel. I think everything I've said to you already, <laughs> yeah. it's an accumulation. Uh, uh, I start the book with the question people ask when you're a musician, how long do you practice every day? I love to know, you know. You could practice one hour and get more done than practicing 10 hours and, and just rote, repeating everything. Yes. But they ask you that. People ask an author, you know, how long did it take you to write your book? And my answer to that is it took me my lifetime to write my book. Mm. Um, the book is something that's been on my mind for a long time to pull together the work I've done for now many years many articles that I've written, and I wanted to pull things together in one place. And I also wanted to reach out to people who work with performers of all kinds. Because I'm a musician, Oxford University Press wanted me to focus it on the musician. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to pull together my own life and reach out and share what I have discovered clinically, in research, in performance, um, with other people, and help them help others. Um, and that was the motivation behind why now, because it was time right now to do that. Yeah. So what are the best kinds of mantras to use? You mentioned mantras. How can we create the best type of mantra? That's different for every person. I'll tell you a story okay. about that. Um, when I first went back to, actually before I went back to school, I did some volunteer work with a researcher, a behaviorist at the University of Michigan. And uh, because at that time, when I went back, 1980, there really wasn't much written about the performing musician. And this person was working in test anxiety. His name was Jim Papsdorf. I lost total contact with him. But he was doing research in test anxiety. And so we thought there'd be a similarity between that and music anxiety, and it was. So I went into the lab, and, and we had a, he had a project going where we worked with people, and we did this relaxation. And we had them we talk about a mantra, focus on an image that was relaxing. But in the research, we had to keep everything the same for everybody. And the image was you were relaxing on a beach, 
And we want you to close your eyes and uh, wind blowing through your hair and clouds and the waves are lapping. And most people did relax. We had them hooked up to biofeedback. The person I was working with didn't relax. In fact, her, her numbers kept going the, the, wrong, the opposite way. Mm. So I stopped. I said, okay, I'm going to mess up this protocol. But I have to ask this woman what's going on. And I said, mm. you know, what's going on? She said, you're talking about relaxing on a beach, and I hate beaches. Ah. And I learned at that point, mantras are very different for everybody, and it's a very personal thing. Sometimes for me, it's a word like peace, or even the word one, or an image, or my, my cats for sure. I've never seen anything relaxed like these these cats, <laughs> these kittens. Yeah. Um, or it's also, um, some. I don't think this is exactly the same thing, but visualization is often used to, with performers to visualize a successful performance. Visualize you're going on stage, that you walk out, and, and to help them say things. This is more the behavioral protocol that we used. Visualize the audience applauding and you see your teacher in the audience. To visualize your enjoying that moment. To looking forward to doing what you're doing. Now you can't fool the unconscious if it's afraid. But it can help people realize, and I think teachers can do this. It's something that would be doable in a teaching situation, whereas in therapy you would get much more into the nitty-gritty unconscious things. But I think by doing some of this, you can tap into the unconscious. You can make things become more aware to people that they're just focused on, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it, and they get more and more and more tense. I'm not, right. I don't think I'm really answering your question, but I do think that it's a very personal, individualized, and that whoever is working with the performer needs to be alert that you may have to switch some of the things you're saying on the spot. Say, unlike my piano teacher did when I was six, and I said, stop the record. I hope she just didn't hear me, because if she heard me and didn't respond to me, that's even worse. Right, it is even worse. But I'll never know. Do <laughs> Dr. Nagel, I always ask a question about bullying and how it relates to mindfulness. Do oh. you have a story where, I don't know, maybe it's a story about yourself where you were bullied and mindfulness might have made a difference? Or maybe it's a story about someone else? But mindfulness truly can make a difference in bullying situations. Yeah. Do you have a... Something I think, you can share with us? Well, yes. I think a general thing, and I've thought about this because we talked about it before and it made an impact yes. on me. Uh, and I think it's incredibly important. Stage fright is a bully in itself. Mm. Stage fright is a bully that, that makes competent people feel they're incompetent. And I think bullies tend to do that. And whatever we can do, whatever technique or therapy works for an individual to help build a strong sense of self and self-esteem so that these bullies 
whether it comes from inside your mind or from some person at school or at work, um, that we can withstand that because we have a sense of self that um, says, I'm not going to allow myself to be treated that way, and I'm not buying into what you're saying about me. Uh, and that uh, I think that mindfulness, if, 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 if you can think of yourself as successful and competent, and, uh, and, and it's kind of like um, developing not an immunity, but at least a sensitivity to that's not my problem, that's the bully's problem, and then to be able to speak up and find help if, say, if you're a child or an adult, um, that if you can't um, simmer yourself down to the point where you do believe in yourself, that you can find someone who can help you. But I think stage fright is a, a, a giant bully. It, it can undermine the most competent, smartest, talented, prepared person. And um, we can help inoculate people to dealing with that kind of a bully. And we can read more about how to do that by reading your book, Managing Stage Fright. So it's wonderful that you've shared that with the world and given us the opportunity to learn some of the things that you've learned. Dr. Nagel, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just very, very short answers are perfect. Who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness? My grandfather. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? It's helped me understand myself and feel good with myself, despite some of the harsh winds that have blown and will continue to blow. I, I can go inside my mind. You've talked about breathing already, but I want to know if you can sum it up in a sentence or two about how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. Breathing simmers me down, deep breathing, slow breathing. Thinking about the breathing, uh, trying to uh, know that I have resources in myself and that breathing will simmer me down when I'm boiling over. If you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, what would that be? Maybe that book you read way back in that book, 1975? That book has stayed in my mind. I, I think that was a early and maybe continuing classic, the, uh, the relaxation response. Perhaps it's, you know, today it would be called mindfulness. Or, or I'm sure if, you know, anything that you have written would be top on my list. Uh, and I will put that into our show notes so that you can, you can download that book as well. I certainly appreciate what you've shared with us today, Dr. Nagel, because stage fright is real for millions of people. There's no doubt about that. And you've put this together in this, this wonderful book, Managing Stage Fright, a guide for musicians and music teachers, but I know you said it also applies to speakers and anyone who has to appear in front of a group. How can we get your book? How can we learn more about you and what you do? 
Um, well, the book is available. It's out on Amazon.com, on Oxford University Press, OUP.com. Uh, I think those are two of the chief ones. Um, I have a website. You're welcome to visit and read my blogs, uh, julienagel.net. I also write on the Huffington Post. Uh, I blog on the Huffington Post. Um, if you're a musician, I write in Clavier Companion, which is the journal, uh, one of their journals. And uh, I would look forward to interacting with people that way. Uh, and uh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And I just want to reiterate, julienagel.net is your website. And that's Julie, J-U-L-I-E-N-A-G-E-L is Nagel. So thank you so much for being on the show today, Dr. Nagel. Very much appreciate it. Thank you, Bruce. It's been a pleasure. All the best to you for the rest of the day. Thank you. Same to you. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or episode number into the search bar. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen. Maybe it's iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever. Hit subscribe and share. Subscribing and sharing helps keep Mindfulness Mode on the air. Subscribe and share, share, share. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode. Oh, and keep Mindfulness Mode on the air. Subscribe and share, share, share.